As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, again, we stand amazed that we have before us uh, the very word of God. I pray that since it looks like the other books on our shelves pretty much, uh, we don't always remember that it's alive and that is life to us. And so I, I pray that this book, unlike any other, would now thrill our souls. It would grant grace to us even as we read and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to First Thessalonians in chapter 5. First Thessalonians in chapter 5, please. <clears throat> Forgive me this morning as I struggle with a bit of a bad throat. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5 and verse 12. I'll just read through verse 14. That's all we made it through in the first service. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5 verse 12, please. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, as Paul comes to the end of this particular uh, letter, he's, he's got two things, really two related things on his mind. We mentioned last week. Perseverance, our perseverance, and our sanctification. Two big words. Perseverance meaning our keeping on with it, our persevering, our holding fast to the truth, our persevering. And second, our sanctification, meaning our growing in godliness. The kind of technical New Testament language is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so he wants us to continue on. Continue on in the faith, and he wants us to be growing in the grace of God in such a way that we're growing in godliness, in Christ-likeness, if you will. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. So that's what he has on his mind here uh, as he he comes. Now, when we think of these terms, we realize perseverance, we realize, okay, becoming a Christian isn't a once-and-done thing in the sense that when one embraces Christ when one is converted, when one believes, that isn't the end of it, it's the beginning of it. That stays with us. Everything then in our life gets pushed through being a believer, being a follower of Christ. Everything is understood in light of that. Everything is lived in light of that. We, we persevere, as Jesus put it. Once we put our hands to the plow, don't look back. We keep on plowing, if you will. We keep on moving and growing in this being a christian isn't that thing that i do during times of crisis but no other time no being a christian isn't that thing which i do while i'm dating that girl being a christian isn't that thing uh, that i do at christmas and easter uh, being a christian isn't that thing that i do to make my wife or my husband happy or whatever or because my kids need it no 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 being a christian means I'm a believer in Jesus. I yield to him. I submit to him. I follow him. And everything in my life is transformed then by that. Not merely informed by it, but 
transformed by it. All right? And thus we persevere. We never stop. And in our persevering, we grow. And the grace in which we grow means that I'm increasingly sanctified, increasingly being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what Paul has in mind here. Now his hope is that God will be at work in us. That little benediction at the end, verse 23, 24. He says, now, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. So he's looking to God. He's saying, now, I know I'm telling you this, but, but, I, but I'm trusting that God will do it. That God will sanctify you, conform you to the image of Christ, increase you in godliness completely. And may your spirit, soul, and body, your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. That is kept, that you'll persevere. You'll keep on. You won't slide away. You'll be kept, that your whole spirit, soul, and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Meaning that when the Lord Jesus returns, you'll still be in him. And then he says, he who calls you, this one who has called you into his glorious kingdom... This one who calls you is faithful. That is trustworthy. He will surely do it. So his his hope is in God. That God is going to do this. Now the way it feels to us. Paul really laid out. When he wrote to the church in Philippi. In Philippians in chapter 2. He writes this. He says therefore. Verse 12. My beloved. As you have always obeyed. So now not only as in my presence. But much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what it feels like. That we're working all of this out with fear and trembling. We wonder. It's sometimes difficult. We surely want to do it. but, but So we're working this out. But even then, Paul can't get too far from his hope. He says... He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says, here's the nature of our life. We're we're persevering and we're being sanctified. We're keeping on and we're being conformed to the image of Christ. God's doing that work in you. Now work it out. God's doing that work in you. Now live it out. God's doing that work in you. Now persevere. Now be godly. God will do it. And you will too. God will do it. And you'll work it out. That's the sense of it, you see. Now the context in which this happens, as we mentioned last Sunday, is in the context of family. It's in the context of church. And it is family, this metaphor that Paul loves, this household of God. In fact, when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, in the very first word, uh, verse, he, he introduces this. You get his drift. He says, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace. He says, listen, we're like a family. We have a father, God. God's our father. We belong to each other then. When there's a father, there are siblings, you see. And we're the siblings. He's our father. We're the children, we're siblings of one another. He is our father, that's his sense of it. In fact, when Paul speaks to him about his relationship with him, his ministry to them, he says, I've been like a mother to you, I've nurtured you. I've been like a father to you, I've exhorted you. 
And then throughout the course of this letter, he refers to them as as brothers, the brethren, that is brothers and sisters together under one Father, one Lord, one indwelling Spirit, one hope. We're united, you see, together under this one Father through Jesus. See, what unites us as believers isn't our culture... It isn't that we share the same culture. That's not what unites us. What unites us isn't that we're all sort of the same, we have the same education level or not, or the same um, likes and dislikes. It's not that we like the same music. Trust me, we don't. <laughs> I hear you. And I love that. And then when people say, we only like the song, I say, great. You know? Because you didn't come then for that, did you? No, no, no. That's not what unites us. Building doesn't unite us. What unites us, what unites Christians, culture to culture and in the midst of it, generation to generation and in the midst of a generation, what unites Christians is Christ. We're united because of, under, and in Him. We're united together in Christ. And we're, we're a family, you see. That's the, that's the metaphor. And I know family isn't happy language, happy thoughts for everyone. But, but family, you see, is, is what we must redeem, what we must understand if we're going to understand how we're to relate together. And he says we're a family. And we're, we're structured like a family. Last Sunday we realized there are leaders, there are elders that oversee and manage and members. And he says, these, these, these overseers, these elders, are ones who work among you. And they're charged with the protection of, the guarding of, the nourishing of, the flourishing of your souls. Just like parents in a family have that charge. Obviously, I'm not comparing congregations members to the children and the elders to the fathers in that sense but but that's the structure of it he says there's those who oversee they watch over your souls and jesus said these are the ones for whom i died so you're accountable to me for their souls if you will you're accountable to me to be faithful to me to oversee them as i would and those in the congregation, in the family, are to recognize those who do this work of praying and teaching and preaching and admonishing and overseeing and nourishing and building up and all of that. They're to recognize that. They're to see that. And when they see that, they're to respect. And as they respect, they're actually to esteem in love. In such a way that it's actually a great joy to be one of those overseers. Because the greater the joy, the harder the work. That's how God has established it. And we must realize that if a believer finds himself or herself out of this family, in terms of sharing life in the context of church then it impedes at best their sanctification and perseverance 
Because that's the way God has established it. So if you want to persevere and you want to be sanctified, and you, it, it happens in here. You've got to be in the context of this family. If I could put it like this, a believer outside of church is as vulnerable as a child outside of family. All right? You understand that? If we see the image of a small child at the curb and no parents around, then we realize how vulnerable that child is. A Christian outside the church is that vulnerable. Now you may not look as vulnerable because you might be an adult. But you really are. Because God has said, if you want to be sanctified and persevere, then here's where I do that. And you see, while the work is accountable to Jesus, and the work of the members is submission and esteem and love and all of that, it's to be done, as I mentioned, in great joy. And I, I need to say this. When I'm out and about, and I, I, I am from time to time, and I'm talking to other churches about church, talking to other pastors about church, the question always comes, what's been your personal experience in church? And they, they want stories, you know, war stories. And I have to tell you, I haven't got any. It has been a great joy and delight to be here all these years. In fact, if I could say anything about church life to other churches, I would say this next expression really says it all. He says, be at peace among yourselves. See, what I've experienced... And our staff over the years has experienced and our elders have experienced over the years and you have experienced over the years by the grace of God is that we've lived together in tremendous peace. I always think that the world is where it's crazy, you see. This should be home. This should be stability for us. Our children should be able to come here and experience peace, you see. Experience that harmony that is to be here. And, and it is. And, and I'll tell you, every time I come in off of being out and about and talking to others about these things, I'm so grateful to be here. Because you see, there is that expression. Paul goes on to say, be at peace among yourselves. That's, that's really it. And on the one hand, he's saying that to, to leaders in the congregation and to the congregation, to, to church. He's saying, be at peace among yourselves. That peace, you see, leads to tremendous flourishing. I'm sure we have lots of other things wrong. But one of the things that God has blessed us with here is tremendous peace. And, 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 and he says, be at peace among yourselves. But you see, it isn't just peace with elders and congregation, leaders and congregation. It's being at peace among yourselves, you know, as a group of siblings to be at peace among yourselves. And that's been true too. I get the sense when I read this that, that Paul's sort of packing up the church in Thessalonica for a road trip. And he's got all the kids in the back seat, right? That's all of us. 
And he's driving and he's going down the road and he's giving the instructions that, that parents, at least we did, to our kids. All right, it's going to be a long trip, people. And this can either be easy or it can be miserable, right? Because you know that not too far down the road, one kid's going to say to the other, he touched me. He looked at me. He's breathing. Right? And it just starts from there. And 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 Paul said, No, 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 no. If this journey is going to flourish, be it be at peace with each other. You see, that's the very essence of of of, of, in some sense, the faith. In fact, we read throughout the scripture over and over again this theme of peace. And it's not that the apostle didn't have anything else to write about. It's not like, well, I need to write about something else. I'm always writing about peace. It's that he had to write about it because it was crucial. It was integral into the life of the church. A passage I read this morning out of Romans in chapter 12. He says to them, um, uh, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, don't be proud, but associate with the lowly. That is, you're not better than anybody else. Associate with everybody. Be, be, live in harmony together, even with those who may be very different than yourself. Verse 18, chapter 12 of Romans, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He's saying, and that, that as far as it depends on you, that isn't an excuse not to live at peace. He's saying, he's saying he says, do everything you possibly can in order to live at peace. With each other. It's, it's that significant, that crucial. Chapter 14 of Romans, uh, verse 17, he speaks of the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the kingdom, there is to be righteousness, godliness. There is to be joy. And there is to be peace. That's the essence, you see, of the kingdom of God. And so he says, verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In 2 Corinthians in chapter um, 13 and verse 11, again, in kind of a summary statement, the apostle puts it like this. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the love of God and the God of love and peace will be with you. He says, live in peace. I could go on and on and on, I won't. But that's essence of peace. You see, we were made for peace. We were made for what the Old Testament calls shalom. Peace. And that kind of shalom, peace, is a blessedness. It's the blessedness that comes from no worry, no anxiety, peace. And that comes by living in perfect safety. Nothing, in a sense, at risk. And nothing is at risk Because you have all the provision you need and all the protection you need. So you needn't worry about anything. And in creation, God made it so that we were to have this shalom. Because you see, this shalom comes when we're in perfect peace with God. You know, the great expression out of the the epistle that, that says, If God is for you, who can be against you? That's really true, isn't it? If you really think about that. If God is for you, why would we worry about anything? If he's really for us, his attention is to us, he's fighting for us, he's, he's, he's providing and protecting. If that comes from God, then why do we worry about 
about anything really. Or the great Psalm 27 that says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Well, if he is your light and your salvation, who should you fear? And the answer is, no one. No one. I say, so, so, shalom, peace comes from being in God, united to him, knowing that he's for us. And so that would exist in the Garden of Eden. That word to ex- was to exist in the Garden of Eden so long as Adam and Eve stayed in relationship with God, lived worthy of him, honored him as God, depended on him for everything. But of course, we know that didn't happen. They turned away. They rebelled against him. And that rebellion then brought a lack of peace, a lack of peace with God, no, long, no longer in him in that same sense but now separated from him under his judgment. And God was a threat to their autonomy at that point. And so what did they do? They ran and hid. So we see the running and hiding. No, no real peace from God. No real peace with each other. Adam and Eve had their first spat. And it was in front of God. And they said, it was this woman. She did it. Why did you give her to me? You see. And then they were ashamed. There's no longer intimacy before God and each other. And then difficulties began. And God said, there will be difficulties with you, between the two of you. And we saw how that played out, even in their children, with Cain and Abel, and on and on and on throughout history. And so there is no peace, you see. With God, no peace with people, no peace with the earth. It fought back. It wouldn't yield its fruit as it once did. No peace, really, with even in within ourselves, there's the fear of death, and we know that a death comes. And, and then, of course, no fear, no, no peace among nations, no peace among people. That all the result of sin. And then we realize this redemption that comes in Jesus, that, that's what brings peace, doesn't it? It brings peace with God. His blood, the scripture says, has brought peace. There's peace with the blood of the cross. Why? Because it deals this blood of Jesus, this sacrifice of Jesus, this paying of our penalty for our sin, it it brings peace with God. And it also brings peace with each other because it unites us together under one Father, one Lord, one indwelling Spirit, one hope. We're united together. Peace. And then in the final consummation, we'll see it in all of its fullness. And so now he says, God does live peace. This very peace that came through the costly sacrifice of Jesus. Be at peace. Peace among yourselves. And he begins then to, to lay out some, some disruptions, if you will, uh, to that kind of peace. And notice uh, how he puts it. He says... He says, well, be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, courage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. You see, he says, among you will be those who are idle, faint-hearted, and weak. And they're going to disrupt your peace. They're going to disrupt the peace. And, and so how do, we, how do we deal with that? Well, you could say the easy way to deal with it, I suppose, would be to discard them all. Just move them out. He says, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not it at all, you see. Because, you see, peace is the very essence. Let me rephrase that. Peace 
is to be the very essence of family. Peace is to be the very essence of church. It was interesting in the Gospels in Mark chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, Jesus um, speaks of peace, but in a funny kind of way. Verse 49 of Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Wow. Verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And you say, all right, Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, salt that's lost its saltiness, well, it really isn't salt, right? When you say pass the salt at dinner, you mean the salty salt, right? Uh, if it's not salty, you'd say leave the bottle of those little white granules over there, right? This whole passage started with the disciples disputing among themselves as to who's the greatest. And he says, if you want to be real salt, if you want to preserve, then be at peace with one another. You see, unsalty salt makes as much sense as an unpeaceful church. I remember one time I was in the grocery store and I was amazed at this box because I was in the cracker aisle and it said, unsalted saltines. <laughs> and I thought, I thought what made a saltine a saltine was salt. It should be called a een. <laughs> um, well, a church that lacks peace is like an een, right? It's an unsalty saltine. And Jesus said, if you want to be salt, if you want to continue on, if you want to persevere, you want to be preserved and be a preservative, be at peace with each other. Now we know that discord in family and church is not impossible but it is incongruous that is it is inconsistent with the very nature of the thing families are to be at peace church is to be at peace you see that shouldn't be the exception that should be the rule and so, as Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he says, listen, if you're going to persevere, if you're going to be sanctified, it's going to be in context of church. Be at peace, elders and congregation. Be at peace, brothers and sisters. So, if there are those among you who are idle, now the idle really could also be translated as the unruly. In, in, in this particular instance, those idle ones were probably the ones who weren't working, 
And they weren't working, as we saw in chapter 4. They weren't working because they thought Jesus was going to return soon, so why work? Now, the problem is, in their idleness then, since Jesus didn't return, they ran out of money, and they became a problem for everyone. And so the question is, what do we do with these ones who are unruly? Now, this word... For the idol is a milit- comes from the military sphere, and, and it it's really references one who is out of step. If you if you think a, a group of soldiers marching down together down the down the road together, all in step, this one is the one who's out of step. Now the difficulty, of course, with the one who is out of step is that others may follow, and that's a problem. It can disrupt the very peace of the march. In fact, if, if everyone continues on and this one particular one doesn't about face, there's a huge problem. He's out of step, you see, with everyone else. And that's what the apostle's saying. There'll be some among you always who are out of step with the rest. And he says, I want you then to admonish them, to warn them. To get them back in step. Now it may be that these ones are out of step because they're being rebellious. It isn't just this soldier's uncoordinated. Uh, it's that he's being rebellious. He doesn't want to keep in step. But doesn't think he really has to keep in step with everybody else to stay at peace with the whole unit. He, he, he thinks he can go on and do his own thing. And, and, and Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Well, there's an unruly one. If there's one who isn't in the church, who finds himself, herself out, then you need to warn them, bring them back in. You may notice that there's someone in your midst that Oh, you realize, well, they're not showing up as often as they used to to the various events. To worship, perhaps. Where have they been? Or maybe they pull out of small group. Maybe Sunday school. Maybe, maybe it's, it's a Bible study they've been in and you begin to wonder what, what really is happening here with them. It may be, as a student, someone who's beginning to hang out with the wrong people. People that you think will be a difficulty to them. It, it may be that something is out of balance in the context of their lives as you see it and, and maybe their work is starting to take over. It may be that the children's activities are running their lives in such a way that it pulls them out of fellowship and out of relationship in the context of church life and you begin to see that that could be dangerous. It could be someone who's just simply rebellious, who just simply says, listen, I'm a Christian, but I don't have to live. I don't have to follow after Christ. Maybe the sexually immoral, as Paul put it earlier in this, in this letter, could be them, could be others. And Paul says, here's what I want you to do to keep the peace. Don't write them off. Warn them, admonish them. And notice, this isn't a command to the elders. This is a command to the brothers. He says, listen, you, you need to go after them. You do, not the elders. You do. You need to, they're your friends. You need to go after them. In fact, Paul gives an example of this. He, he, he speaks to the idol in, in Second Thessalonians in chapter 3. In verse 10, he says, for even when we were with you, we give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, that is, they're out of step. Being in step would mean they'd work like everyone else, but they're out of step, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And he says, you're disrupting everyone. Now such persons we command uh, and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. That is, don't grow weary in being in and continuing to, to, to be in step with the Lord. 
If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In other words, if you can take this picture. If you're a group of soldiers and you're marching together and one of you goes off, he's saying, don't have anything to do with him, meaning don't go with him. Oh, you can still talk to him, give him a call, email him, have lunch, whatever. But don't do that. Don't go with him over there. Don't tell him that's right. But admonish him and say, come on. But notice how he puts it. He says, don't regard him as an enemy, but as a brother. That is, admonish him, warn him as a brother warns a brother. You know how a brother warns a brother? Some of you are laughing because you had a brother. It won't be like that. (laughs) Leave the baseball bat in the closet. Um, A real brother warns a brother by going to that person. A real sister warns a sister by going to that person and saying, I see this. I know where that leads. In fact, I know where that leads because I've been there. Don't go there. I beg you, by the mercies of God, come back. I know it may not seem much to you now, but but, but I, I know where that leads. Please, I love you. Come back. It's not judgmental. It's not official. It's peer to peer, person to person, brother to brother, sister to sister, friend to friend. One who cares. To one who needs to be cared for. Come back. That keeps peace. And then he goes on to say, there are those who are faint-hearted. Now the faint-hearted are just that. In fact, literally it means small sold. S-O-U-L-E-D. Small sold. It means someone who's easily discouraged. In fact, Gandhi took the name Mahatma because those Sanskrit scholars tell us that Mahatma means large souled. And so he was one who was bold. He was one who was not easily discouraged. He was one who was willing to take on the whole world, if you will. So he was the Mahatma. He was the big, large-souled one. This is a faint-hearted one. This is one who's not like that. This is one who's, who's easily discouraged, who's timid, who's fearful, who doesn't want to take on the whole world, who'd rather just stay right here, thank you very much, and not move on at all. And he says, there are always those among us. In fact, various ones of us may go in and out of being faint-hearted or be faint-hearted for a season. It's just difficult. It may have been the ones who were afraid of death. In Thessalonica, the very ones who wondered about their, their friends, their loved ones who had died and maybe about their own death. They were worried about Judgment Day so much so that it traumatized them, so much so that it debilitated them, so much so that it would keep them from any action at all. It, they'd become very discouraged. It, it may be that they looked at the culture and they, they said, we're going to be swept away from, by the culture. It's going to take our children, take our lives and, and, and lived in complete discouragement 
all the time about these things faint-hearted. These ones in Thessalonica were being oppressed physically and materially by others. It could have been that this persecution, as many in the world even today knows, this persecution come against them in such a way that they become downhearted. And that's the characteristic of their life. And the apostle says, don't, don't cast them aside. Encourage them. Give them courage. You know, Timothy in the scripture was known as the timid one. Paul would have to speak to him often to encourage him. And he would remind him various occasions. Remember when you were called to be a pastor, Timothy. Remember that? Remember the prophecy that was given? That is, we would call it in our day, the charge that was given to you that, that was said that God had called you as a pastor and, and he would equip you in all day. Remember when that happened, Timothy? Go back there for a minute and think about that and, and be encouraged by that and then fan into flame the gift that you've received, Timothy. Don't be timid. He would come beside him to give him courage to enable him to go on and he would do that by the word. We do that by presence, by our very presence with each other, just to be with each other. What I said, called the other week, uh, a hug of, uh, with truth. That is, a, I'm here with you, but I have truth too. I'm bringing the truth of the scripture. If God is for you, who can be against you? If the Lord is your light and your salvation, then whom should you fear? Trust him. He is good. He is at work, and he's working all things together for good. These aren't trite things. These are real things. To the faint-hearted, we need to hear those. Be encouraged by those. Oh, there's an art to bring this, and we don't want to be superficial, and we don't want to be just sort of rote about these things. We want to be sensitive and all that. But we need, when we see those who are discouraged, to come alongside them and encourage them with this truth, you see. And then he said, there are those among you who are weak, and we can be weak in various ways. We can be physically weak, Right? We can be physically weak. We can be socially weak. Many in the church in Thessalonica were among those, as Paul would mention often, he would say, not many of you were wise when you were called. Not many of you had any social standings, but you were weak. And he says, when you find those and their believers, come alongside them, you see. The weak in that way. Some are weak in faith. Paul speaks of those in Romans chapter 14 and in and Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians, in chapter eight, he said there are those whose consciences are so seared by anything that they're afraid that anything they might do could lead to sin, or or a demon will come and get them, right? And he says, well, hmm. when you come across weak brothers and sisters like that, help them. How do you help them? Well, you you don't do anything that's going to make them stumble. He says the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking. That doesn't, doesn't mean anything at all. It doesn't matter if you eat this or drink that. But if it does to your brother or your sister, then don't. It'll be fine. It's not that big a deal. It's just food. What's really important is their soul. So love them, help them, you see. There are some who are, who are weak to temptation. Uh, not the rebellious type necessarily. They don't necessarily want to be, but, but they've come out of a background of certain sins that still tie them and they find themselves to be weak. He says, don't discard 
Help them. Come alongside them. And then he says, be patient with them all. Now, you know why he says that? He says that in warning the idle and encouraging the faint-hearted and in helping the weak, it can be really frustrating. They can, you, you can feel like you're being taken for granted. You can feel like you're being used. You can feel like you're being inconvenienced all the time. You can feel like they don't really care. They're not really thankful enough and helping you and all of that. And he said, no, 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 be patient. Mean, meaning, this is the way life is. This is always going to be true. Always among us will be the unruly. Always among us will be the faint-hearted. Always among us will be the weak. We'll be in those categories from time to time. She says, you need to be patient. This is going to take your whole life. Be patient. When our kids were little, we used to have this song that used to get played. It was the patience song. It went something like, have patience, have patience. Don't be in such a hurry. When you get impatient, you only start to worry. Well, one of my children, Sarah, didn't have a lot of patience. She, she often remarked about that song. She said, Dad, I love that song, but it's way too slow. We don't mind being patient as long as it doesn't take too long, right? We don't mind being patient with the unruly as long as they'll get with the program pretty, you know, within a reasonable amount of time that I define. And, and then, the, you know, the faint-hearted, we, we don't mind encouraging them as, as long as, you know, it doesn't get too far into the afternoon. And then, and then you know, the week, we can help them, but, but... No, be patient. He says, when he says be patient, what he's saying in a sense is treat them the way God treats you. Treat them the way that God treats you. He's the patient one, really. Treat them the way God treats you. Show them the patience, really, of God. And we think, well, God doesn't have to be that patient with me. I mean, I get on it right away, right? Be patient. And and then he says, because you see, they exist for your sanctification. They exist. The idle, the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak. They exist for your growth in godliness. Because you see, when you're being patient... And warning and encouraging and helping. What you're really doing is loving. That's real love. Sometimes I think it doesn't really get to be real love until it's really inconvenient. It doesn't get to be real love until it really costs. And then in the midst of that patience which is evidence of costliness, we're loving. And when we're loving, 
or being like Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us, that we would be at peace. Thank you for the peace that we have enjoyed. I trust that peace is your grace to us and that peace comes from our warning the idol. That peace comes from our encouraging the faint-hearted. That peace comes from helping the weak. May we continue, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction.